we're in the second week of a new series called The Cloud of Witnesses. Uh, in it, we're walking through Hebrews chapter 11. Scholars, they call this chapter the Hall of Faith. Uh, it's a list of men and women who exhibited and embodied faith in God. Uh, people like Abel, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Rahab, Moses. These are the people in the Hall of Faith. And we're looking to the lives of these men and women because the best way to see what faith looks like is to look to those who've lived by it. Because faith, it's not just believing the right things, but living in light of what we believe. However, despite the fact that this chapter of Hebrews celebrates the faith of this eclectic group, it also points us beyond their faith. Their faith points beyond themselves. Their faith in some way takes us to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of their faith. And Hebrews tells us that their faith should encourage us to press on and place our faith in Jesus. Faith for us, then, is the total alignment of ourselves with Jesus. Whether that's our intellect, our abilities, our emotions, our desires, our will, we align these things with the person of Jesus and we live in light of who he is. Uh, this week, then, is our first week of diving into the cloud of witnesses. And so we start with Abel because that's where it begins uh, Hebrews 11 verse 4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, his brother, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The author of Hebrews is clear. Uh, it's faith that made the difference between Cain and Abel. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the faith of Abel, the anger of Cain, and how Abel still speaks. So open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 4, as Roger said, all the way at the beginning. Today, um, before I say anything else, uh, you need to know, we are not going to try to read the story of Cain of Abel on its own terms. I'm not even sure that's possible. Uh, there's some good attempts out there. Walter Brueggemann, his, his work on Genesis is provoking. It's an attempt to read it on its own terms. But what you discover is he's just reading it on his own terms. Right? You, you, you bring in presuppositions either way. And so this morning, we are going to read the Cain and Abel story in light of the entire story of Scripture. And more specifically, in light of what the author of Hebrews has written about this story. So that's the lens by which we're going to read it. With that in mind, let's start in verses 1 and 2. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. This is a snapshot into the first family of God. Uh, C.S. Lewis cleverly calls them homo divinus. You know, the, the first uh, family that had an awareness and relationship with the living God. Uh, and we zoom in after the fall, after Adam and Eve uh, broke their trust with God and had been expelled from the garden, we, we zoom in to Eve giving birth to her first children. Uh, she has Cain, and she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Uh, I like the King James Version. You know, I have acquired a man from the Lord. It's so British and proper. Um, this is how we respond to childbirth. I have acquired a child from the Lord. Uh, the Hebrew, it's, it's nuanced. It's not entirely clear if Eve is truly giving credit to God. Uh, it's not clear 
if she's taking most of the credit and then saying, and thank you, God, on the side. Uh, what is clear is that uh, she takes pride in her role of creating Cain, her firstborn. And we see this because she names him Cain, which means to get or to create. And his name is based off of the same verb she used when she said, I have acquiredeth a man from the Lord. That can be translated, I have gotten or I have created a man from the Lord. And so we see right off the bat that um, Cain is favored by his mother. He's delighted in. Uh, and he will go on to be a farmer, which in the ancient world, uh, farmer was like what you want your child to grow up to be. It was a respectable career. Uh, so Cain, as, as the firstborn, he's sitting pretty. And then Eve has Abel and says absolutely nothing. Abel is almost an afterthought in the narrative. His name literally means breath that vanishes. One scholar put it this way, uh, Cain is a firmly established being Abel barely exists. And he goes on to be a shepherd. And shepherds in the ancient world were despised. So in every single way, you have to see that the, the narrative in Genesis is setting us up to favor Cain. Cain is the favorable one. Which takes us to verses 3 and 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. What's interesting here is that Cain is the one who initiates giving an offering to God. Nowhere are we told that God requested an offering. Cain simply does it, and Abel follows suit. The firstborn goes first, the secondborn goes second. Uh, everything seems to be good and in order. And yet, verse 4 is disrupting. The Lord had regard or favor for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard or favor. This should shock us. In every respect, Abel was the lesser, you know, the second born, a shepherd, and yet the reverse happens. God shows favor to Abel. He shows favor to the breath that vanishes instead of the favorable Cain. And it forces us to ask why, doesn't it? Like, why would God do this? And the story doesn't tell us. But Genesis is designed precisely this way to provoke us and to pull us in and to consider what is going on here. So we have to ask, uh, is it just the goods that were, that were offered? Is that what made the difference? You know, is God a southern gentleman? Does he just really like himself some barbecue? Uh, is God saying, you know, bring me the brisket and the pulled pork. Bring me that pleasing aroma. Cover it in barbecue sauce, but don't bring me fruit, because everybody knows fruit does not go with barbecue. Vegetables. Bring me vegetables, you know, uh, baked beans and green beans and, and, and uh, cornbread, you know. Is this what's happening? Is God just being a stickler about what goes with his meat? Uh, while that would be respectable and commendable, because barbecue is delicious, uh, I don't think that's what's happening. So then, is it the quality of what was offered? Is that what made the difference? You know, Abel's offering gets a, a greater description than Cain's. Uh, it reads, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. You know, there may be something to this. In the ancient world, uh, the firstborn of the flock and the, and the fat portions, this was seen as an excellent offering. This was the best of the best, high quality. And the quality mattered. But if we simply stop at the difference of quality, we've stopped short. If Abel gives the best of the best and Cain just gives a regular old fruit platter, 
It's a clue that's meant to lead us into their hearts. The text is pushing us to to try to see that there must have been something different about what drove them to make their offerings. And scripture as a whole has a ton to say about this. Whether you go to Psalms like Psalm 40 or 51 or Proverbs chapter 21 or the prophets, Isaiah, Samuel, Jeremiah, or even Micah, they speak in unison in saying God doesn't desire sacrifices. What God really desires is our hearts and lives given to him. And this is precisely how the book of Hebrews interprets Abel's offering. You know, think about what he, the author of Hebrews writes in 11.4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Faith was the difference. And we know this on a very basic level, that what motivates a gift makes a huge difference. And when I say we, I mean women. Um, or so I've heard, women understand the motivations of gifts better than guys. Guys, we can be a little inept in this department. Say, a husband, you know, he's getting groceries on the way home, and he sees some flowers on sale, so he buys them. This could be a good thing, you know, buying flowers for your wife can be a good thing. So he gets home, takes off his shoes, greets his wife, gives her the flowers, and she's elated, happy, throws her arms around him, so grateful. And she says, well, what's the occasion? He says, oh, nothing. They were just on sale. Not romantic at all. Gentlemen, don't do it. Uh, she will show you no regard. Um, if he said, well, well, I bought them, I just want to put in the bare minimum to keep you happy and off my back. Gentlemen, no regard. If he said, you were on my mind, I saw these flowers, and they paled in comparison to your eyes, but I thought, If I just gave them to you, you would get a glimpse of just how truly beautiful you are to me. She will show you regard. Gentlemen, throw that one in your arsenal. But uh, flowers, the flowers either way are still flowers. The flowers, it's not like the flowers were needed. And when they're given, it's not the flowers that deepen or express the, the meaning of the relationship. It's the motivation behind them. It's the old adage, it's the thought that counts. God, he doesn't need offerings and sacrifices. He desires the faith behind them. Any offering from our hands is only acceptable when it's the expression, the outward expression of an inward and obedient and devoted heart. The author of Hebrews says, God showed regard to Abel because he approached God by faith. Abel simply made the offering in response to who God is, the creator of all things, worthy of the very best. So Abel aligned himself with who God is and lived in light of it, offering the very best of the best to God. And approaching God this way, approaching God by faith, is why God regards Abel, according to Hebrews. And Hebrews continues in verse 4, that Abel's faith is through which he was commended as righteous. It's a scriptural way of saying uh, this is how we're acceptable in God's sight. This is how God regards us with grace and favor. Um, This is how we find ourselves in a right and life-giving relationship with God. It starts and begins with faith. When it comes to Cain, you know, maybe Cain just made his offering because he had some extra crops. Maybe Cain just made the offering because he just wanted to keep God off his back. Maybe he made it out of obligation, you know. Um, Maybe he just wanted to, you know, one-up his little brother. Or maybe his offering was a lot like how Eve named him. 
You know, look at what I've done, Lord. Look at what I've produced. And then on the side, you know, with your help. The truth is, we don't know. We don't know what was going on in Cain's heart. We don't know the exact differences between Cain and Abel's hearts. But what we do know is that the fundamental difference was faith. Faith is why God showed regard to Abel and his offering. And a lack of faith is why God showed no regard to Cain and his offering. And we discover that there is no way to be accepted or regarded by God without faith. Let that sink in. There is no way to be accepted or regarded by God without faith. That statement surely has just bothered, hopefully, many of you. Um, Certainly bothered Cain. When Cain saw that God regarded Abel and Abel's offering, but didn't regard him and his offering, Genesis says in verse 5, that Cain was very angry, and he fell on his face. He feels anger. And, and maybe it's just sibling rivalry. But with the book of Hebrews in mind, I don't think that's the case. I think what's likely is that Cain is angry about what is required of him to be regarded by God. He's angry about faith. And I would suggest that the anger of Cain is just as present here and now in this room. Because Cain's anger so deeply resounds in the human heart. Uh, You may be thinking, or you've thought, no, if there's a God, and that's a big if for you, but if there's a God, uh, he shouldn't regard people just if they believed in him. It should be about living a good life. Um, You know, how they had morals and were good to people. That's what God should recognize. And so you're struggling with this because you're saying... You're saying in response, you know, wait, you're saying, if you and I stand before God at the end of time, and there ends up being a God, and say we were on the same page morally, or even say that I had a better track record morally than you, that God, the game changer with him, is going to be the fact that you believed and had faith, it makes you angry. If there ends up being a God, why would he need you to have lived a life of faith? Why can't he just recognize that you were a good person? Just out of high school, uh, I, I had a few summer jobs at a little tourist trap in Victoria called the Crystal Gardens. Uh, I worked in this gift shop. It was one of the most glamorous jobs I ever had. I had to wear this bright red shirt, a hat with a fanny pack, required. For, fortunately, no photographic evidence. Um, Crystal Gardens, it's downtown Victoria, just down the street from uh, the harbor. And so throughout the summer, when cruise ships come in, you get this flood of tourists. You know, they have a day in Victoria. And what I came to discover in that summer is that some Americans just have a tough time wrapping around the the idea that Canada is its own nation, its own country. Now, I don't want to make generalizations about all Americans. Many of you are Americans. I love Americans. I love an American. My wife, Julia, she's American. Go America. Uh, But um, there's just a few Americans, okay, maybe a little more than a few Americans um, who just can't get their heads around the fact that Canada has its very own currency and it's colorful. Multiple times a day, people would come through the shop and they would buy some useless item, usually like something with a moose uh, in it, you know, uh, put it on the counter, I'd ring it up, tell them the price. And they would say, do y'all take American? And I'd say, yeah, we take, we take American. They'd say, great. Um, they would pay and I'd give them their change in Canadian dollars. And it was like I just punched them in the face. Like the look of disbelief. Like, what is this? I'm like, it's, it's money. <laughs> Why is it not American? Well, 
we don't do that. Well, why not? And I'd usually say, well, because you threw the queen's tea into the water. You know, what do you expect? <laughs> you see, they would come into this little tourist trap with their own currency, American. And they came in with the expectation that this is how we operated, but it's not how we operated. We didn't operate with the same currency. When you say it doesn't matter if I had faith or believed in God, it just matters how I lived, you're entering into God's economy and expecting it to operate with your own currency, but that's not how God operates. And you fundamentally misunderstood the nature of God. If you think God is only preoccupied with rules and being moral, then you, you haven't actually encountered the God of the scriptures. God doesn't need your morality. He wants your heart. And this should make you glad. Because if you really want to be evaluated by your moral performance, I don't care how great you are. It's not going to measure against the infinite majesty and holiness of God. Uh, George Whitfield, um, he was uh, a part of the English Great Awakening in the 18th century. Uh, he cheekily said, what? Get to heaven on your own strength. Well, you might as well try to climb the moon on a rope of sand. God's economy uh, works by grace, and its currency is faith. Uh, this means you can't offer anything he doesn't already have. You can't meet the requirements of his moral standards. And if you stand before him and offer a life completely lived for yourself, then it's not much of an offering at all. You've already had your reward. You've lived your life. You got the benefit. God's economy works by grace, and the only way to receive that is by faith, trusting in who he is and living a life in response to him. And if you believe in God, don't think you're off the hook here either. Uh, we can believe but not live with faith. Uh, you, we can even, just as easily fall into this moralism perspective. Maybe you think, well, I've behaved. I do the right things. I tithe. I, I pray. I fast. I read scripture. I go to church. I care for the poor. I don't gossip. And I even shared the gospel with someone this week, baby. All of which are good things. They are. But then you think, well, God must be pleased with me. I'm doing what he wants. I must be on my way to a gold star with God. Well, suddenly it's not your faith that sets you right with God, but your confidence in the things that you're doing. And perhaps you think, but would never say out loud, now God owes me. Which reveals that everything you're doing is really for yourself still. When we live thinking that there's something we can do or give to God to make him regard us, we've misunderstood God's economy of grace. And the Bible will even go on to say, uh, if you have faith, like if you just believe, but you don't do anything, that's not going to work either. You're stopping short there too. Because faith without an expression of that in your life, in the things that you do, that's dead as well. What we don't want to overlook then in the Cain and Abel story is that God is not content to leave anyone in faithlessness, whether it's a lack of belief in him or a lack of that belief being expressed in a healthy way through their lives. Look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God invites Cain to try again. 
To do well implies that Abel has already done well and that Cain can also do well. But the option is still on the table. And if he wants to be regarded by God, he needs to return to God in faith. And there's a risk if he doesn't. God says that sin is crouching at the door, that sin desires to rule over him. Sin is described as this um, destructive power that wants to consume. The risk, however, is that when our hearts confront our own faithlessness, more often than not, they harden instead of soften. We get this. When you're in the wrong, and you know you're in the wrong, and someone points out that you're in the wrong, how do you respond? You say, you're right, I'm in the wrong. No way. You say, I'm not wrong. Right? This is our initial response. Um, have you ever lost a car key? Was it your fault? Of course it wasn't. Uh, once upon a time when Julia and I owned a car, uh, we had one car and so we had to share it. And uh, Julia needed to get to work immediately and we couldn't find the keys. Uh, and she was confident that I was the last person to have them. And that couldn't possibly be the case because I'm a good and upright and responsible person, I would put the keys where they're supposed to go on the hook. So surely she was the one that lost them. And this was fine for the first 15 minutes. But eight hours later, this had turned into a little bit of an ordeal. And I just hardened even more. I questioned Julia's competence. I, uh, I went downstairs and asked our neighbor if he had stolen our car key. Uh, I called friends to see if they had taken it. It could have been anyone and everyone but me. It was anyone's fault but my own. That is until Julia asked me if I had checked my back pocket. And I said, oh, I never put the key in my back pocket. And I, I already checked. So she said, well, check again. And, and I checked, and the, the key was in my back pocket for eight hours. Uh, and she said, well, there you go. I said, you must have put it there. Uh, <laughs> friends. <laughs> Finding the key didn't end the fight at this point. Uh, we got through it. It's okay. I bought her some flowers. I said, girl, these flowers. Um, in the same way, in the same way, when we confront our own faithlessness, we end up digging in. Our hearts harden and we resist God despite him giving the, us another opportunity to try again. And just as God warns Cain, the result is that our lives remained wide open to this sin crouching out the door. And the heartbreaking part of the story is that Cain doesn't listen. He doesn't take up God's offer to try again. He digs in. He resents God. And verse 8 reads, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This should make us feel sick. This is what happens when sin reigns. The first account of death in the world is at the hands of humanity. Cain is the one who brings death into the world. The first account of death is murder, a brother murdering his brother, the fracturing of a family, the grief brought into a family, Adam and Eve, weeping over their sons. And when you see Cain dialoguing with God after the fact, it's as if Cain doesn't even care. Look at verses 9 through 13. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said to him, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said to him, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. 
When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Abel's blood cries out from the ground. and God hears it. Abel's blood cries out for action, for consequence, for vindication, for justice. And God acts. God curses Cain. And it's more than Cain can bear. And you would think that God would strike Cain down on the spot. He's violated creation. He's brought death and murder into the world. And yet how God responds to Cain tells us something profound about the character of God. Look at this in verses 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Cain, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. God protects Cain. God shows grace to Cain the murderer. He gives Cain mercy when Cain deserves judgment. Mercy even in the midst of costly consequences. And the only fathomable reason as to why God does this is because God is still giving Cain the opportunity to do well. God doesn't give up on people even when their lives are being consumed by the power the destructive power of sin. But the tragedy is that Cain never turned. He never accepted the mercy God offered him. So stepping back, what are we to learn from Abel's faith? He's the one who's in the cloud of witnesses. The author of Hebrews says in 11.4 that Abel, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What is Abel saying to us? God desires us to have faith in him and not in what we think we can offer him. God desires us to have faith in him and not in what we think we can offer him. Yet, both Cain and Abel made unsolicited offerings to God. This shows us that there is something ingrained in our nature that makes us think we need to offer something to God, to be right with God. And it speaks to a profound truth. An offering is required to set us right with God, but it's not an offering we could ever make. Abel's faith made him right with God, not because of his offering. And in this way, Abel speaks and points us to Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith. As Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Jesus made a better offering than Abel ever could. God doesn't need our offerings because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice once and for all time. He freely offered himself and he was faithful to God all the way to enduring death upon a cross. And with this in mind, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, verse 24, that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Both Abel and Jesus had their blood shed. But unlike Abel, Jesus' blood doesn't cry out for our condemnation. It doesn't cry out for justice to be served for us. Jesus' blood cries out for mercy, for grace to be given to us, for us to be forgiven. Because Jesus bore our condemnation on the Christ. And therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And in doing this for us, Jesus takes us into the heart of God. And we see this part of God's heart in the story of Cain and Abel, don't we? 
God pursues Cain, the murderer. It's solely an act of mercy and grace that God would pursue those who rebel against him. Pursue those who have violated creation. Pursue those who have turned to the consuming effects of sin rather than turning to the living God. The lives of Cain and Abel remind us that God doesn't regard the best of human accomplishment. Because that's not how his economy works. It operates on grace. God accepts the least, the broken, the vapors, those who recognize that they have nothing to offer God, but still draw near to him by faith, trusting that he's a God who shows grace, a God who shows mercy, and a God who forgives. And we know this definitively because of the offering of Christ on the cross. And we want to make sure that we learn from Cain. He might not be in the cloud of witnesses, but he is tied up in Abel's story. God did not cease to give Cain an opportunity to do well and to return to him with faith. Even after he had murdered his brother. Which means it doesn't matter what you've done or how far you've gone. There's always an opportunity to turn to God with empty hands. Trusting not in anything you could offer, your performance, your goodness, whatever. But trusting in the offering that Christ made for you. Because what will make all the difference on that last day will be whether you're willing to accept what God has done for you in Jesus. Lastly and quickly, Abel still speaks, reminding us that our faith in Jesus is expressed by us offering ourselves and our lives to him. Having faith doesn't mean that we just are inactive And wait until one day that we're taken up. Uh, Faith means we still pursue good things, but these good things are put in their right order, in their proper place. Uh, The things that we do, they don't warrant our acceptance before God. They are an expression of our love of God and a response to what God has done for us in and through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we offer our lives, our time, our energy, our resources, our abilities, our desires, our thoughts, our emotions, our wills to God. But as a way of expressing our love for our God who has graciously loved us first. The things we do for God are in response to who he is and we're living in light of it. Because faith isn't just believing the right things. It's living in light of what we believe.